Well, let me ask you this question. If you were having coffee or a drink with one of your friends, and they, they basically said in the midst of the conversation, I don't think any can, anyone can know if there's a such thing as life after death. What would you say to them? How would you go about answering that? Would you speak up? Would you say what you believe? What reasons would you give for believing what you believe and stating what you might state? It's really a part of Christianity 101 to believe, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But why do we believe that? Is that just a wish, just something that we want to be true? Or is that something that we can know to be true? And no, I'm not talking about uh, sensational books that are written about people who, who have claimed to, to die and come back and to tell us things afterwards. Is there something more foundational that we can, we can stake our lives and indeed our whole eternity upon? I want to contend to you that yes, there is. And it goes back to the very foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, not only of his life and the things that he taught, but of his death and his resurrection. Because without the resurrection of Jesus, there is simply no good news. And so today we're going to be looking at the very end of the Gospel of Luke as we've been on this journey to understand this good news of great joy that is for all people. And we're going to call our study today, When Death Started Working Backwards. If there's any Narnia fans in here, you know what I'm tipping my hat to. So um, let's, uh, let's begin with prayer as we open up these scriptures and ask the Lord to teach us and to, to comfort and strengthen our hearts this day. Lord, thank you for the very fact that we have not simply the Gospel of Luke, but the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and the Gospel of John as well, these different angles on the life of Jesus that together give us a a 360-degree, in stereo view of the life of Jesus. And thank you for preserving these scriptures for us through all these uh, centuries and indeed through two millennia, and now they've come to us. And so as we look at the final words of the Gospel Uh, According to Luke, this good news about Jesus, would you help us to understand um, what he has written and why he has written it and how the gospel of Jesus intersects with our lives? And so we pray this in his name. Amen. So the context is Jesus has been crucified. He's been dead and buried, and now he has come back from the dead. There are eyewitnesses, and Luke is showing us some eyewitnesses to this account. And last time in our study of Luke, we saw how Jesus came along some of his disciples who were traveling down a seven-mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and how he opened their scriptures to understand all the things that were written about him, and how he entered one of their homes with them and broke bread together, and they recognized who Jesus was, not simply through the eyes in their head, but with the eyes of understanding, the eyes of their heart were enlightened. And so they made their way back to Jerusalem to get with the other disciples. And this is what we're told. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. Peace was one of the themes of Jesus' ministry. Uh, It's been highlighted throughout this Gospel of Luke for us. In fact, all the way towards the beginning, when Zechariah beheld um, Jesus, he said that he would guide our feet into the way of peace. Remember, the angels promised that Jesus would bring peace on earth. Over in the Gospel of John, at the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And now he comes and he makes his appearance to his disciples who had already been told by the women who went to the tomb that morning 
that Jesus is alive. Peter has already gone to the tomb and seen that it is empty. And now they're trying to figure out, what does this mean? So he says, peace to them. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. (laughs) Now, put yourself in their position, right? You're not used to seeing people come back from the dead. (laughs) You've seen Jesus beaten within an inch of his life by the Roman soldiers. You've seen him crucified. You saw where they buried him. And now all of a sudden, Jesus (laughs) is there in the room with you. You would be startled too. You would be wondering, what is going on here? Is my mind playing tricks on me? They thought they saw a spirit. And so someone says, isn't this proof that Jesus didn't come back as a body? That they, they, they thought they see a spirit, or maybe somehow Jesus is living on in their memory? What's interesting, in the Gospel of John, as he kind of tells this story, he says on the first evening of that day, this is Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Some people look at this and they think Jesus was a spirit because he could could pass through a locked door. We're actually not told that he passed through a locked door. We're actually told that he appeared to them. Jesus' resurrection body has supernatural abilities, which is is tantalizing to think about what our bodies might be like in the resurrection as well. But we're told that basically he manifests himself there. And as I'm trying to think through, you know, culture and what would be an appropriate uh, analogy of this, I'm thinking of Star Trek. Remember when they do that energized thing and, you know, zaps into another? I wonder if that's what's going on here, because it doesn't say that he passed through the door. He just appears to them which is one of the reasons they're freaking out. (laughs) That door was locked, and now Jesus is standing before them. And he said to them, why are you troubled? (laughs) And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Because, Jesus, (laughs) we're not expecting to see you. (laughs) They're troubled at what they're seeing, and doubts are arising in their hearts. This, This cannot be true. This is too good to be true. And so Jesus says to them, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Can you imagine yourself there in that room with the disciples who are trying to to make sense of what is happening in that moment? And the very Jesus they saw crucified with nails driven through his hands and his feet, and a spear thrust through his side, is now showing them his very wounds. It's interesting that the resurrected, glorified body of Jesus still bears these scars. Luke doesn't tell us about this, but the Gospel writer John tells us that when Jesus appeared to them, one of the disciples was absent, and that was the disciple Thomas. And Thomas comes back, and his disciples say, we have seen Jesus alive. And he's not believing them. He'd be skeptical just like you would. Think someone's playing a trick on you or something like that. It'd be kind of a cruel trick after everything they experienced. But they're saying that. And then John tells us that Thomas said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe That's pretty high standard, isn't it? You guys are crazy. 
I'm not believing what you're saying. Unless I see Jesus myself and can actually touch him and place my fingers in his wounds, I'm not going to believe what you guys are saying. And John tells us that Jesus came back and he stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas in that moment said, My Lord and my God. What an amazing utterance from this man who believed that there was one God. He's, he's at the feet of Jesus, and he says to him, My Lord and my God. What would that have been like? I would love to have been there in that moment, to be with the disciples, to be able to, to touch the body of Jesus, put my hands in, in his side and in his wounds. Philip Bryken, the commentator that I refer to often, had something very insightful to say. He said, the wound marks remain on the resurrection body of Jesus as a permanent reminder of everything he has done for our salvation. His hands and feet show the Father that he has paid the full price for sin. At the same time, they show us that our sins are fully forgiven. In fact, the glorified wounds of Jesus show us the whole gospel. The marks on his body bear witness to the cross where he died. Both his, uh, but his hands and his feet belong to the same resurrection body that came out of the tomb. These are the two great facts of the gospel, he says. Jesus died and then in the same body rose again. These two facts give us the good news of our salvation. By the cross, our sins are forgiven, and by the empty tomb, we have the free gift of resurrection life. The body of Jesus now still bears the scars of his crucifixion. And my friends, just like the disciples were able to do, one day we will be able to put our hands in those wounds, those, those precious wounds that purchased our salvation, what would that be like? I love what verse 41 says here. <laughs> While they still disbelieved for joy. What an interesting phrase. <laughs> While they still disbelieved for joy. What does that mean? <laughs> In one sense, they can't believe what their eyes and now their hands are, are saying to them. That Jesus is alive. And yet joy is rising in them, even as they can't fully comprehend and bring themselves to, to comprehend this moment. While they still disbelieve for joy and were marveling. Just think about when you marvel at something. They're marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat? I don't know if this is because Jesus was particularly hungry at the moment, but maybe he just... He needed to give them an illustration to just help them get their minds around what's happening right here. Spirits don't eat food, but physical bodies do. And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Remember, these were fishermen. And he took it and he ate before them. I wonder what that would be like. I remember when my kids were younger, make a snack for them, and they'd sit down and eat, and then I would get my snack, and they would all sit around me and watch me eat. I think what they were actually saying as they watched me eat is, can we have some of that? They just come right out and ask. And I can just imagine these disciples sitting around Jesus as he eats this fish, and they're just like staring at him. <laughs> is this really happening? This man that we saw crucified, 
tortured, and buried actually before us? Can our, can our eyes actually believe what we're seeing? And Jesus just keeps taking one bite of fish after another as the reality of how everything has changed settles in. The Apostle Peter, in the book of Acts, said they, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear to us who have been chosen by God as eyewitnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. When Jesus was eating this fish and, and drinking with them, it wasn't the only time he did this with them. He did it multiple times. But this is part of the testimony that they're able to say. We didn't just see a spirit. We saw the physical resurrected body of Jesus, and we ate with him. Luke tells us in verse 44 that Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. If you remember back to the section right before the one we're looking at today, on the road to Emmaus, this is exactly what Jesus did with the disciples. On the road to Emmaus, he opened their minds that they might understand the scriptures. He began to tell them everything that had been written about him in what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And we're told here in verse 44 that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is now the second Bible study that Jesus is conducting on Resurrection Sunday. What it would be like to have your mind opened by Jesus to understand the scriptures. That must have been amazing. Just like the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, I, I have to believe that the same thing is happening to the disciples now in this room. The road to the Emmaus, the disciples said, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures? To be able to study the scriptures is an immense privilege. To be able to hear the scriptures taught by anyone is an immense privilege. But how much more so to have Jesus say, let's do a Bible study together. That must have been amazing. And then to see how Jesus would show you, beginning from Moses in the book of Genesis throughout the prophets, how everything was pointing to him. That must have been mind-boggling. So we're told that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Jesus said this is the essence of what the scriptures teach. It's what they're pointing to. It's what they've been conditioning you to expect. That the Christ, that is the chosen one, the Messiah of God, would suffer. But on the third day he would rise again from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Not only should Christ suffer and rise again on the third day, but Jesus says this is what the scriptures are pointing to, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations in my name. Repentance simply means turning around. If you're heading this direction away from God, it means turning around towards him. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name of Jesus, not simply to Israel, but now to the entire world, to all nations. And he says to them, I want you to begin in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Jerusalem is the very place where Jesus was crucified. 
It was there when the worst of humanity and all evil was poured out on Jesus. And yet Jesus says, I want you to go right back to the heart of Jerusalem and proclaim the forgiveness of sins. Some of you know who John Bunyan is. He wrote that wonderful book, Pilgrim's Progress, while he was in prison for preaching the gospel. He also wrote this other little book called The Jerusalem Sinner Saved. I read this when I was in seminary, and it's a delightful read. But he raises an interesting thought. He says, this is a little bit kind of, uh, you got to kind of follow along intently with this quote because like a lot of people that day, they just have these long run-on sentences. But let me see if we can do our best together. One would have thought, since the Jerusalem sinners were the worst and greatest sinners, Christ's greatest enemies, and those that not only despised his person, doctrine, and miracles, but that a little before had their hands up to their elbows in his heart blood, that he should rather have said, go into all the world and preach repentance and remission of sins among all nations, and after that, offer the same grace to Jerusalem. Yes, it would have been an infinite grace if he had said so. But what grace is this when it commands that this repentance and remission of sins, which is designed to be preached to all nations, should first of all be offered to Jerusalem in the place of the worst sinners? Some 50 days after this Resurrection Sunday, Peter would then stand up in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost. And nations would be gathered there. Jews from around the nations would be gathered there. And this is what he says. But Peter, this is actually what Luke in the book of Acts tells us. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised them up, loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when we, they heard this, Luke tells us, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here he is preaching repentance for the remission of sins. And he tells them, repent and be baptized. That is to receive the sign of the new covenant, this sign of, of washing in water. Because in Jesus, you find forgiveness. In Jesus, you find the answer to your longing heart. He says, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting about that book I was just telling you about by John Bunyan, he, he, he imagines people responding to Peter in this moment. And he said this. He, he puts these words in the mouth of, of the people listening to him. But I was one of them that plotted to take away his life. May I be saved? Peter answers, every one of you. But I was one of them that bore false witness against him. Is there grace for me? For every one of you. But I was one of them that cried out, 
Crucify him, crucify him. And I desired that Barabbas, the murderer, might live rather than him. What will become of me? Peter answers, I am to preach repentance and remission of sins to every one of you. But I was one of them that spit in his face when he stood before his accusers. I also mocked him when in anguish he hung bleeding on the tree. Is there room for me? For every one of you. But I was one of them that in his extremity said, give him gall and vinegar to drink. Why may not I expect the same when anguish and guilt upon me? Peter says, repent for these, your wickednesses. And here is remission of sins for every one of you. But I railed on him. I reviled him. I hated him. I rejoiced to see him mocked by others. Can there be any hope for me? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. And then Bunyan says, Oh, what a blessed every one of you is here. How willing was Peter and the Lord Jesus by his ministry to catch these murderers in the word of the gospel, that they should be monuments of the grace of God. Isn't that amazing? Jesus wanted his disciples to march into the heart of Jerusalem, the very place where he is crucified and slandered and mocked, and to offer those very people the forgiveness of their sins. Why? Bunyan says, because Jesus wanted to capture them in the words of the gospel. He wanted to make them monuments of his grace. Some of you may be hearing an echo of the words of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to Timothy, his young protege. He said, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into, sa- into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Remember, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He oversaw the first execution of a follower of Jesus. He was there on that day when Jesus was crucified. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm a monument of grace. I'm one of those people that Jesus offered forgiveness to. I'm one of those who experienced the salvation he offered. And he goes on and tells Timothy this. But for this very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. What is Paul saying? He's saying, if you think that God cannot have grace on you because you screwed up, because you made some horrendous mistakes, because you sinned against God, then think again. Because if he had grace and mercy upon me, the worst of sinners, then he could have grace on anyone. In fact, the reason Jesus saved me was so that he can show his unlimited grace and patience for people like you. And Paul could just wrap that up by saying, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, and invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What an encouragement it is for us to hear that Jesus was willing to send his disciples back to the very people who crucified him. To make monuments of his grace. To put on display for everyone to see 
that God is willing to have grace and mercy upon anyone and invites people like you and me to simply turn and come to him. Luke continues in his gospel by telling us what Jesus said. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is a bit cryptic for us, but if we've read the Gospel of John, you know that this is the promise of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus would send another helper. And the Holy Spirit is the promised, powerful, personal presence of God that indwells all those who embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not going to go too much into this. I hope to do a series on the Holy Spirit in the future. But let's see how Luke concludes his gospel. He, that is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This is what theologians call the ascension of Christ. He was bodily raised right before their eyes. That must have been a sight to see. And we're told that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he reigns there with God the Father for all eternity. And then the last thing Luke tells us is this. They worshipped him. (laughs) Seeing this once crucified and now risen Jesus, having eaten with him, having been with him, having seen him now rise into heaven, they simply worshipped him. Now let me remind you, these are Jews who've been taught from their very earliest of days that you only worship God. That to worship anything else would be blasphemy. And here Luke, at the end of his gospel, wants us to understand that these devout Jews are now worshiping Jesus. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. That must have been quite the experience. So why does Luke, in his historical biography of Jesus, write it, first of all? Why do we even have it? And secondly, why did he include the appearance of his disciples? May I suggest, as we look at this climax of his gospel, without the resurrection of Jesus, there simply is no good news. We most likely would not have ever heard of Jesus, no matter how popular he was at the time. Death would remain all-powerful. It would get the last word. But with the resurrection of Jesus, there is good news for every one of us because Jesus gets the last word. Death doesn't have the final say. Jesus does. That's why Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel, this is a gospel of good news, of great joy for all peoples because Christ is risen from the dead. Okay, so where are my young people in this room? You remember the story of Narnia? The story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? I know some of y'all have read this, and some of y'all have had this read to you. It's the story of when the white witch reigned, and we're told that evil has reigned for a hundred years, and one of the ways they described Narnia at this time was one of the worst ways you could describe anything. It was always winter, and what? Never Christmas. (laughs) Can you imagine being caught in an eternal winter? I used to live in Calgary, and I would see snow from October to to May. That was way too long for anybody to see snow. But can you imagine if it was just always winter, year after year after year, and never Christmas? But one day, 
the children in Narnia noticed that the snow began to melt. And there was a whisper that Aslan, the great Lion King, was on the move. And in the midst of this story, we're told that the white witch took one of these children and was able to get him to turn. Does anyone remember his name? Edmund Wright, yes. He had the Turkish delight, which was an enchanted candy. And, and he betrayed his friends and went to the side of the, the evil white witch, which is exactly what she wanted. When she told Aslan exactly what happened, she said, you know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery I have a right to a kill. And so that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. She's gloating before Aslan. She has this, this young child. Now she is able to kill him. And Aslan responds, It is very true. I do not deny it. But in this moment, Aslan proposes a trade. Aslan would give his life in exchange for Edmund's, which is exactly what the White Witch wanted after all. <laughs> if she could kill the Lion King, she could reign forever and ever. And so she and her minions shave Aslan, take that beautiful mane off of him, and bind him with cords, and they lay him on the altar, the table. And she says to him, And now, who has won? Fool! Did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? <laughs> now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. And with those words, she did an incredible act of violence on Aslan and slain him. The next morning, some of the girls, Lucy and Susan, went to that table, and they found Aslan lying there. He'd been murdered. He was dead. And they were weeping. All their hopes had been placed upon him. He was the king who was coming to reign. He was the one who would destroy evil. And now, he's dead. It seems like death, once again, has won. And death, once again, has the last word. And as those children got up and began to leave that place, they heard this great crack. And they turned and they saw Aslan roaring as a lion. And they asked the question, what does this mean? I, they're disbelieving for joy that Aslan has come back from the dead. And just like those disciples must have been asking Jesus, what does this mean? We, we, don't get, we don't believe what our eyes are seeing. This is what Aslan says. It means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. The life of Aslan began giving life to others. You remember how the, the white witch had placed this 
curse upon the living creatures and they turned to stone and Aslan would simply come and breathe on them and they would live again. That's exactly a beautiful illustration of what Jesus has done. They crucified him. They thought evil had won. And then that tomb cracked open and out came Jesus with life and forgiveness in his hands. And now all who believe in him receive forgiveness. <laughs> they, they, they feel the breath of Jesus upon them, enlivening their souls. And as Peter said on that day when he stood up in Jerusalem, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. What an amazing story. The very last book of the Bible tells us that the Apostle John, as he was seeing this vision of heaven, Christ, he is told, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He's the victorious one. He gets the last word. So just a couple points of application, my friends. First one is this. Let's look to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. For some of us, this is, this is old news, even though it's good news. For some of us, we've heard this and Maybe we've wrestled with whether or not we want to believe it. Maybe for some of us, this is, this is the first time that we understand that forgiveness of sins is offered to people like us. And what a tragedy it would be to hear the good news of Jesus and just go, well, isn't that an interesting story? And not have it affect you. <laughs> believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. As Paul would say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be reconciled with God. You'll be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. I love what the missionary Leslie Newbigin said. He said this confession, that namely Jesus is Lord, is distinguished and that it is a commitment to a belief about the meaning of the whole of the human experience in its entirety. Namely, the belief that this meaning is to be found in the person of Jesus Christ, incarnate, crucified, risen, and destined to reign over all things. When we believe in this crucified and risen Christ, we declare that he is our Lord and he is our Savior. This is a fundamental belief about all of reality. And so we're encouraged to embrace him. Here's the second point of application. Let's join the long history of witnesses who testify about Jesus, crucified and risen from the dead. You and I are not eyewitnesses to what has happened, but we have received the eyewitness testimony of the, the early followers of Jesus. We've been told how he appeared numerous times to people over a period of 40 days, how one time he even appeared to over 500 people at the same time. And so this story has been passed on to us, and this is what we bear witness to ourselves as we listen to those early followers of Jesus. And so let me ask you a question. Maybe... Maybe give you an assignment to think about when you engage people over a coffee or a drink or some food or something like that and, and raise questions. I think one of the best ways to engage people these days is through questions. What if you were to begin putting this question into play? It's one of those questions you would ask. Do you think that death is the end or just the beginning? You're not preaching at this point. You're not making any claims yourself. You're just simply asking people what they believe. And there's plenty of opportunities about this, whether it's hearing about the wars going on around this world or the death of a famous celebrity. or Whenever these things come up, this is a great opportunity to simply ask someone what they believe. Do you think death is the end or just the beginning? I'm curious what you think. I've asked this question to many people over the years. 
and it's always opened up conversation. I usually follow it up by saying, can I tell you what I think about that? I've never had anyone say, no, I don't want to hear. You know, usually people, after they tell you what they think, would be glad to hear what you think. And then you can tell them what you believe. Not what you hope to be true, but what you know to be true. Because some 2,000 years ago, there was this great crack of an empty tomb, and Jesus came back from the dead. The reason we know there's life after death is because Jesus has come back and declared that to us. As Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So here's our third point of application. Let's, let's worship Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Did you catch what it said at the end of the gospel? They worshiped him. My friend, is that if there's anything you could give your heart to, anything that should stir you with wonder, with love, with affection, with marvel, it should be the resurrected Jesus who died in the place of people like you and me and who lives and reigns forever and ever. Friends, stir your hearts to worship Jesus frequently, to tell him what you think about him, how you adore him, how you want to live with him, however imperfectly you do. But stir yourselves to worship Jesus and let's not do, do it on Sundays. I mean, we do. We put an exclamation point on it on Sundays. But every day of our lives, take time to offer to Jesus the adoration of your heart because he is worth it. Well, that brings us to the end of Luke. There's actually a, a part two. It's called the Book of Acts. And even though we're not going to join Luke in volume two of this, we're going to spend some time with one of his companions in the ministry, Paul, in the book of Philippians, let me just leave you with how he introduces that second volume. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What a great introduction to, to Volume 2. Volume 1 was all about what Jesus began to do. Volume 2 is what he continues to do. 28 chapters in Luke. Chapter 29 is not there, but in many ways you and I are living in chapter 29 as Jesus continues to work in us that which is pleasing to his sight. So Mercy Hill Church, may you always confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead.